Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Uh, welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and across the table is Matthew Stockton. Oh, God, we're going there. <laughs> It's just a matter of time. We've talked about that here on this show before. So uh, people have uh, equated us to the Bob and Doug of podcasting. Am I Bob or are you Bob? I think I'm Bob. Yeah, I think I'm Doug. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty, pretty sure I'm Bob. Uh, sort of the crustier older brother. Yeah, which makes sense. Anyway, so we've got a bit of a palate cleanser this week. We're, we're gone away from the murder. Right. And uh, we're going to look at the Cold War. Brr. Yeah, not that kind of cold. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Patine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, Family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. played an important role in the Cold War, a period of intense geopolitical tension and rivalry between the Western powers and the Soviet Union that lasted from the end of World War II in 1945 until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. As a member of the Western Bloc and a close ally of the United States, Canada was involved in a wide range of Cold War activities including the establishment of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, the construction of a network of radar stations in the Canadian Arctic known as the Dew Line, and the creation of a series of underground emergency government bunkers known as Bunkers. The Cold War also had a significant impact on Canadian society, shaping public attitudes toward issues such as national security, nuclear weapons, and international relations. Canada's involvement in the Cold War was also marked by several important events and figures. One of the most significant of these was the defection of Soviet intelligence officer Igor Guzenko in 1945, 
He provided Western intelligence agencies with valuable information about Soviet espionage activities and the Soviet plans for sabotage and subversion in the West, as well as revealing for the first time that the Soviets were close to obtaining nuclear weapons. Guzenko's revelations helped to expose Soviet spies, including a sitting member of parliament and agents operating in Canada and around the world. For decades, the information Guzenko shared played a significant role in shaping Cold War geopolitics and international relations. This is Dark Poutine Episode 260, The Cold War in Canada, Bunkers, Radar and Nukes, Oh My. As we mentioned off the top, Canada's Cold War story starts in 1945 with the defection of Igor Guzenko. He was a cipher clerk at the Soviet Embassy in Ottawa, and just a month after Japan had surrendered, ending the Second World War, Guzenko had some shocking revelations for the Canadian government, effectively giving us a new enemy for the next 45 years. While at the embassy, Guzenko became disillusioned with Soviet politics and ideology. He was particularly troubled by the Soviet Union's plans for sabotage and subversion in the West, which he saw as immoral and unjust. As is right and proper. Yeah. Guzenko's a hero of mine. Is he? Yeah. Interesting. One night in September 1945, Guzenko, in fear of his life, decided to defect to the West, taking a trove of secret documents he had copied from Soviet archives. With more than 100 sensitive documents stuffed under his coat, Guzenko went to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and offered to provide them with information about Soviet espionage activities in Canada and worldwide. According to the documents that Igor Guzenko provided, the Soviet Union had been engaging in espionage activities aimed at obtaining secret information from the Canadian-British Atomic Research Project. The information revealed that government employees, scientists, and even a member of parliament, Fred Rose, were implicated in the spy ring. Of note, Fred Rose was the only MP elected as a communist in Canadian history. Boo! <laughs> Evil scourge of communism. You're not big on communism, I see. Uh, do you even know me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I, if, if, if anybody is not that far left, it's you. <laughs> Anywho. The tenuous Second World War alliance between the East and the West effectively ended with Guzenko's defection. The Guzenko affair, as it came to be called, marked the breakdown of the wartime alliance between the Soviet Union and the Western powers and heralded the emergence of a new era of global conflict. Guzenko's revelations about Soviet espionage activities in the West helped to expose the extent of Soviet aggression and subversion, adding to fears about the potential for a new global conflict and serving as a harbinger of the intensifying tensions and rivalries that would define the Cold War era. The defection was a major intelligence coup for the Western powers, providing them with valuable information about Soviet intelligence operations and helping to expose several Soviet spies and agents operating in Canada, the United States, and other countries. In 1945, Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King signed a top-secret order in Council, PC-644, or under the War Measures Act, to investigate the allegations made by Igor Guzenko, who defected from the Soviet Union. Now, despite the War Measures Act being set to expire in December 1945, its powers persisted thanks to PC-6444, 
giving the Minister of Justice unlimited powers to detain Canadian citizens indefinitely with no due process. That, that's an interesting little piece of history there. Mm -hmm. So if it hadn't been for PC 6444, yeah. Trudeau Sr. couldn't have used the War Measures Act during the October crisis. That's right. So that it was the same War Measures Act that he used. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, only a few high-level government officials knew of the investigation and PC 6444. Legal advisor E.K. Williams recommended creating a royal commission to investigate Guzenko's allegations, arguing that the ordinary rules of evidence need not bind it. After a leak to an American talk show host, Mackenzie King signed another secret order in council, PC 411, establishing the royal commission to investigate facts relating to the circumstances surrounding the communication. The commission was mandated to investigate Guzenko's claims and to offer recommendations to protect Canada against future acts of espionage. Igor Guzenko's defection and subsequent revelations about Soviet espionage activities included valuable information about the Soviet Union's nuclear research and development efforts. He provided Western intelligence agencies with crucial details about Soviet spies and agents working to obtain the materials and technology necessary to create nuclear bombs. Guzenko's documents exposed the extent of the Soviet Union's efforts to develop nuclear weapons and provided Western powers with valuable intelligence about Soviet nuclear capabilities. On February 15, 1946, RCMP launched a series of raids and arrested 11 suspected spies. In a press conference, Mackenzie King informed the Canadian public and world community about the defection and the supposed spying. The fallout, pun intended, continued, and in the end, 23 Canadians were charged as Soviet spies. In his paper, Spies, Lies, and a Commission, Dominique Clement, a professor of sociology at the University of Alberta and a noted Canadian historical sociologist who specializes in human rights and social movements, wrote, Quote, what followed was one of the most extensive abuses of civil liberties ever engaged in by the Canadian state. Each detainee was held in isolation with 24-hour lighting and under suicide watch by an RCMP guard who was told not to communicate with the prisoners. The suspects were held incommunicado, without access to family, friends, or legal counsel. At first, the prisoners were prepped by the RCMP lead investigator, C.W. Harvison, who encouraged them to cooperate with the commissioners. Each suspect was then brought before the commission and questioned about their activities and relationships with other suspects. If they refused to cooperate, suspects were warned that they were being legally detained by the government and that refusal to testify could result in a charge of contempt of court, leading to six months in jail. And that's for each charge. They were also told that no one had charged them with a crime and that the commission was simply conducting an investigation. With no access to legal counsel and under intense psychological strain, it's not surprising that several prisoners broke down and confessed, end quote. That paper is, is such a Canadian name. Yeah. Spies, lies, and a commission. Yeah, of course, there's always a commission. <laughs> you know, you know the American sort of slogan, life, li liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Right. Do you know Canada's? Yes, it's peace, order, and uh, good government. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
But hey, that's what works. <laughs> Spies, lies, and a commission. And it, a com- is, it, it is what works. Um, there's, there's that saying, like, a boring country is a good country to live in. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, that quote, that's a, it's super interesting that, I mean, these people were essentially pressured into confessing to something they may or may not have even been guilty of. Yeah. I'm, I'm Psychologically mean, tortured, essentially. I'm... I'm against communism, but I'm also pro, um, uh, I almost said choice. I, <laughs> well, you are. I am, but uh, pro, what's the word I'm looking for? Due, due process. Due process. Yeah. Yes. Only 10 of those accused were convicted, including former member of parliament, Fred Rose, who was sentenced to six years in a federal penitentiary for communicating official secrets to a foreign power. Rose, a convicted spy, was released from prison in 1951 after serving four and a half years. He attempted to find work in Montreal but was followed by the RCMP everywhere he went, and they informed his potential employers and co-workers about his criminal history. In 1953, he went to Poland to set up a business and receive medical treatment. While there, his Canadian citizenship was revoked in 1957, and he could not return to Canada to fight to clear his name. He worked as the editor of Poland, a magazine about Polish culture designed for Western markets until he died in 1983. His appeal against revoking his citizenship was denied, but an amendment to the Citizenship Act was introduced in 1958 to prevent a recurrence of this situation. The pages of Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King's diary about Rose were missing, and most other records regarding his case were just gone. Interesting. Yeah, right. That that revocation of citizenship. Is there an international law that says that you only have citizenship of one country, that citizenship can't be revoked because then the people become effectively stateless? Yeah, I don't know how that works. Okay. I, I'd love to know how that works. Maybe one of our lawyer friends, perhaps an immigration lawyer who listens to the show, will uh, call us. Yeah. And let us know how that works. So can citizenship be revoked uh, if it's primary citizenship? Can a person be of no state? I'm interested in that. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, I mean, good thing he was born in Poland. Well, he was born in part of Russia at the time, but... uh, So he had other citizenship. Yeah. Regardless of being acquitted of spying, the reputations of the others accused were tainted and the stink of alleged Soviet association followed many of them for the rest of their lives. Guzenko's revelations played an important role in shaping the course of the Cold War and international relations for many years. Some believe that the Guzenko affair is seen to have been the catalyst for the Red Scare that took place in the 1950s. Guzenko and his family were given asylum in Canada, and he was placed under police protection for several years to protect him from possible reprisals by the Soviet Union. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, Guzenko wrote, This Was My Choice, a.k.a. The Iron Curtain, a book about his defection, published in 1948. He also wrote The Fall of a Titan, a novel about life in Stalinist Russia, It won a Governor General's Literary Award for fiction in 1954. Guzenko made public appearances from time to time, always wearing a hood over his face to protect his identity. The hood became an almost trademark feature. In 1968, Guzenko's appeal in a libel case against Maclean's magazine was heard by the Supreme Court of Canada. 
He and his family later moved to the United States. Eventually, they settled back in Mississauga, where they lived a relatively quiet life until Igor died of a heart attack in 1982. Although the Guzenko affair sparked human rights concerns, in 2003 and 2004, two plaques were installed in Dundonald Park to commemorate Igor Guzenko's historic defection. These plaques, across the street from Guzenko's Ottawa apartment, were erected to honor his bravery and contribution to Canadian history. Yeah, the man put his life at risk. He did. He definitely right? did. We should have a national holiday named after him. Well, uh, he could have been easily defenestrated because that seems to be one of the Russians' favorite, favorite ways, ways of doing it. Dealing with he somebody. He fell out of the window he at just, the hospital. Exactly. Um, what national, okay, what month do we need another national holiday in? Oh, I'm thinking, even though we have family day in February, yeah. perhaps we could have something sort of in the middle of January okay. to, to take the sting out of the, you know, the post-holiday blues. That or, you know, an, an extra day in the summer would be nice though, because then you could be outside and enjoying the weather, right? That's true. Proving the accuracy of some of Guzenko's documents and confirming everyone's worst fears... On August 29, 1949, the Soviet Union successfully tested its first nuclear weapon under the direction of Soviet physicist Igor Kurchatov. The test, known as RDS-1, or First Lightning, made the Soviet Union the second country in the world after the United States to possess nuclear weapons. The development of nuclear weapons by the Soviet Union led to a new phase in the Cold War with Western European powers scrambling to match the Soviet Union's nuclear capabilities. With the perceived threat of the spread of communism and the proliferation of Russian nuclear bombs, NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was created in 1949 as a military alliance between Western European nations, Canada, and the United States, since its creation, the alliance has aimed to provide collective defense against the perceived threat of Soviet expansionism in Europe and the rest of the Western world. The formation of NATO was prompted by several factors, including the Soviet Union's blockade of Berlin, the communist takeover of Czechoslovakia, and the fear of Soviet aggression in Western Europe. NATO was primarily intended to serve as a collective defense mechanism against the perceived Soviet threat, with member countries agreeing to mutual defense in the event of an attack. We're hearing a lot about that today. The proliferation of nuclear weapons on both sides became a major source of tension and instability in international relations. The fear of nuclear war between the Western Bloc and the Soviet Union remained a significant concern throughout the Cold War era, the arms race began in earnest, and moving forward, the threat of apocalypse became a very real possibility. One reason pointed to as a massive deterrent for nuclear war, still relevant today, is MAD, or M-A-D, an acronym for Mutually Assured Destruction. MAD was a key doctrine of nuclear deterrence during the Cold War. The basic principle of MAD was that in a nuclear conflict between two superpowers, both sides would suffer catastrophic destruction and loss of life, rendering victory meaningless. Therefore, the threat of mutual annihilation would deter both sides from launching a nuclear attack. The MAD doctrine was based on the concept of a second strike capability. In other words, each side would have the ability to launch a devastating counterattack in the event of a nuclear strike. This meant that both parties had a strong incentive to avoid nuclear war and maintain a balance of power regarding nuclear capabilities. 
MAD played a significant role in preventing a direct nuclear conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. However, critics of the MAD doctrine have argued that it was a dangerous and destabilizing concept as it assumed that both sides were rational actors and would act to avoid mutual destruction. Additionally, the MAD doctrine did not account for the possibility of accidental nuclear war or the use of nuclear weapons by non-state actors. Despite these criticisms, the MAD doctrine remained a key component of nuclear deterrence strategies throughout the Cold War era. Returning after this break, we'll learn about what the Canadian government did to protect the country, including having U.S.-built nuclear weapons on Canadian soil. And we are back. Matthew, do you have any thoughts so far? I know you have lots of thoughts, but anyway. Uh, just about MAD. Okay, mutually assured destruction, yeah. yes. So MAD is MAD. It's, it's madness. But, yeah. it, but it would be not MAD not to have MAD. It would be madness not to have right? MAD. Right, if yeah. you, okay, well, we're not going to participate in mutually assured destruction, so we'll let you build all the nuclear. You're kind of stuck. You kind of have to do you it. You have to do it. Right, which is MAD. It's, yeah. <laughs> Madness. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention Canada's participation in the Korean War, which we covered in episode 194, the 2021 Remembrance Day episode. To recap, Canada became involved in the Korean War, seen as a proxy war with communist China, on June 25, 1950, following the invasion of South Korea by North Korea. Canada responded to the United Nations Security Council's call for member nations to provide military assistance to South Korea and stem the spread of communism. Canada contributed over 26,000 troops to the conflict, making it one of the largest contributors to the UN forces in Korea. Canadian soldiers fought in some of the war's bloodiest battles, including Hill 335, Hill 187, and Kapyong, and Canadian naval vessels and air squadrons also participated in the conflict. The Korean War lasted until 1953, and during that time, Canada suffered over 1,500 casualties, including 516 soldiers who lost their lives. Canada's contribution to the Korean War is significant in our military history, and its commitment to international peacekeeping efforts. In 1951, as part of our NATO obligations, Canada stationed troops in France and West Germany. Throughout the 1950s, U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy's witch hunt began to rout out the communists in that country. Canada, publicly at least, took a more moderate approach toward the fight against communism. Warning against overreaction, Lester B. Pearson, then Minister of External Affairs, said, quote, let us by all means remove the traitors from positions of trust, but in doing so, I hope we never succumb to the black madness of the witch hunt, end quote. Behind closed doors, however, the situation, driven by fear, was handled with a heavier hand. The federal government tasked the RCMP with security checks of people in sensitive and influential positions like civil servants, scientists, university professors, and trade unionists. They also targeted people seen as nonconformists, including people suspected of being homosexual. At the time, there was a widespread belief among Canadians that homosexuality was linked to communism. This perception was fueled by the prevailing anti-communist sentiment of the time and by a view that saw homosexuality as a threat to traditional family values and societal norms. Many Canadians associated homosexuality with subversive behavior 
The RCMP viewed gay men and lesbians as potential security risks due to their supposed vulnerability to blackmail or coercion by communist agents. The RCMP conducted surveillance on suspected homosexuals and in some cases used this information to pressure individuals to inform on their friends and colleagues. I guess I'm a bad homosexual, oh, Mike. Oh, okay. Because of my hatred for communism. Right. Uh, they might take away my gay card. They might take away your gay card. But you know what's interesting, right? Mm -hmm. So gays and lesbians at the time were living in a society where they weren't accepted. They were forced to be very secretive. They're forced to be secretive, and then that's used against them as potentially being communists because they were yeah. forced into secrecy. Yeah, right. It's just a, a, quite a catch-22. Yeah, it's funny how systemic uh, bigotry works. Like, that is actually the system working to keep somebody marginalized. Yep. For a further reading on that topic, check out The Canadian War on Queers, National Security as Sexual Regulation by Gary Kinsman and Patricia Gentile. From CBC, in Quebec, Premier Maurice Duplessis was a vociferous anti-communist crusader. He said, The world is in crisis, more dangerous and evil than the most grave and destructive of diseases. Nowhere else but in Quebec is there a law protecting people against the vile cocaine of communism. End quote. The article continues. The Quebec padlock law gave police the power to seal off any property where communist literature or activity was suspected. Danielle Dion was a communist. She and her family became a target for Quebec's red squads. Quote, when I saw five strapping provincial police enter my home, I experienced an instinctive moment of fear, but I quickly realized that there was nothing I could do but remain silent. They rummaged through drawers and bookcases, removing literature and books. We had to change apartments a few times because of the raids, end quote. During the mid-1950s, Canada's pursuit of communists began to wane as anti-communist sentiment subsided throughout the Western world. Senator Joseph McCarthy's credibility was damaged in the United States when he turned his anti-communist efforts toward the American army. Meanwhile, in the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin's death in 1952 paved the way for a more moderate leader, Nikita Khrushchev, who adopted a less confrontational approach toward the West. I guess banging your shoe on a desk is unconfrontational. Although things were still tense between the East and West, these factors contributed to the gradual decline of Canada's hunt for communists within our country. During the early years of the Cold War, Russian military planes conducted reconnaissance missions over Alaska and deep into central Canada. Detection of these intrusions was sporadic, but their occurrence was well-known and occasionally reported in the media. Well, this sounds familiar, man. Were they balloons? No, they were actually planes. Oh, but, okay. But, uh, yeah, I don't think the balloon technology was as advanced as it is today. <laughs> what do you mean balloon technology? I have to put some helium in some rubber and there it goes. Uh, helium in a rubber? Oh, anyway, <laughs> um, no, the, the balloon that was initially seen... Mm -hmm. over Canada and the United States that was attributed to the Chinese government was actually, they were able to steer it. Okay. Yeah. So there was actually technology there. It wasn't just floating at the whim of the wind. Will of the wisp. The will of the wisp. But yeah, so at the time it was more planes and Okay. Stuff. Yeah. In response to these intrusions, planning for what has been called the distant early warning line or 
Dew Line began in 1952. The Dew Line was a chain of radar stations located north of the Arctic Circle, spanning 300 miles from the Bering Strait in the west to the eastern shore of Baffin Island. It claimed to provide the United States and Canada with the earliest possible warning of subsonic aircraft and missiles approaching North America from the polar region. The construction of the Dew Line began in 1953 and was completed in 1957, taking three years to finish. The project involved the construction of 63 radar sites stretching across northern Canada, as well as the installation of communications networks, power stations, and other support infrastructure. The construction effort was massive, involving thousands of workers and requiring specialized equipment and technologies to overcome the harsh Arctic environment. Despite the challenges, the Dew Line was completed on time and within budget. It remained operational for several decades, critical in North American air defense during the Cold War. Most of the original Dew Line radar stations have been decommissioned and replaced by newer, more advanced systems. However, some sites have been converted for other uses, such as weather monitoring or scientific research. The last active Dew Line radar station in Inuvik Northwest Territories was shut down in 1993. While the Dew Line is no longer operational, its legacy is a Cold War-era military project and a symbol of the close defense partnership between the United States and Canada. The construction and operation of the Dew Line significantly impacted Indigenous communities in Canada's Arctic region. The building of the radar stations and the accompanying infrastructure disrupted traditional hunting and fishing grounds and caused significant environmental damage to the land. The relocation of Inuit and other Indigenous peoples from their ancestral lands to accommodate the Dew Line and other military installations also had lasting social, cultural, and economic consequences. The presence of the Dew Line and the military personnel stationed there also impacted local communities, leading to tensions and cultural clashes. Over time, some Indigenous communities have sought to reclaim their land and assert their sovereignty and the legacy of the Dew Line continues to be felt in the region to this day. I assume that uh, military presence in the Arctic will be ramped up again with everything that's going on. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that it's thawing up there, so oil. Right. right? So, so you'd think people will be making sure they plant the flags as far out as possible. There's still dispute over who owns what island, which, which country owns which islands up there. And, and suddenly everyone's interested now, now that we might be able to get to that oil. It could be a flashpoint. Yep. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, was established in 1957. NORAD was created as a joint command between Canada and the United States to provide early warning of potential Soviet missile attacks against North America and to coordinate the continent's air defense against hostile air or missile threats. Only months after NORAD's creation came an event that terrified Western governments. It started with this sound. The USSR launched Sputnik, which made the sound you're hearing, the world's first artificial satellite on October 4th, 1957. Sputnik 1 was a 58 centimeter, 23 inch diameter polished metal sphere weighing 83.6 kilograms, 183.9 pounds, 
The launch marked a major milestone in the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and it led to increased efforts on both sides to develop and launch advanced space technologies. The launch of Sputnik 1 also had significant political and cultural implications as it demonstrated Soviet technological superiority. This led to increased public support for science education and investment in space exploration in the United States and Canada. I can remember when I was a kid mm -hmm. in the 70s, my dad pointing to something in the, in the sky saying, it's Sputnik. Oh, really? Do you think it could actually be seen? I don't... I mean, I think my father actually was calling most satellites Sputnik back then. Oh, maybe he was just kidding around. They are Sputniks. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently the decay date right. was 4th of January, 1958. Okay. So it would not have been. Yeah. My father called satellites Sputniks. Okay. So he was just being funny. Yeah. Probably. Or paranoid. Or paranoid. <laughs> this is Sputnik 5. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if the decay date was 4th of January, 1958, yeah, it was up there for a while. And then it went, it was only up there for a few months it, then. It wasn't very big either. Not as far as satellites go today. 58 centimeters. It's bigger than some things. Smaller than others. <laughs> bigger than a bread box. <laughs> the Cold War era space race and the development of advanced intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, by the Soviet Union played a significant role in developing NORAD's mission and capabilities. The creation of NORAD was a part of a broader effort by the United States and Canada to enhance their defense capabilities and address the perceived threat posed by Soviet military advancements during the Cold War, including developing advanced missile and space technologies. While not directly a response to Sputnik, the launch of the Soviet satellite did contribute to a sense of urgency and heightened awareness of the need for advanced air defense and early warning systems. Nuclear weapons are a big part of Canada's Cold War history. During World War II, Canada was involved in the Manhattan Project, a research effort to develop the first nuclear weapons by contributing uranium to the project. The United States primarily led the effort, but Canada's uranium mines and refining facilities in Ontario played a crucial role in supplying the uranium used in the bombs that were eventually dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. Additionally, Canadian scientists played a significant role in the early stages of nuclear research and were involved in developing the technology and methods used to produce weapons-grade uranium. Canada's participation in the Manhattan Project was a key factor in establishing the country's reputation as a world leader in nuclear research and technology. Canadian scientists involved in the Manhattan Project included George Lawrence, a physicist who played a key role in the development of the gaseous diffusion process used to enrich uranium, and Bertram Brockhaus, a physicist who made significant contributions to the study of neutron scattering and won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1994. Other notable Canadian scientists who worked on the project included C.J. McKenzie, a chemist who helped develop the process for producing heavy water, which was used in the production of plutonium, and Harriet Brooks, a pioneering physicist who conducted early research on radioactivity and nuclear physics. Canadian scientists not only played a significant role in the Manhattan Project, but also the development of nuclear science and technology in the following decades. Canadian forces were equipped with U.S.-built nuclear warheads from 1964 to 84. 
However, Canada has never used or tested nuclear weapons and has historically advocated for disarmament and signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Canada, however, was the first country to voluntarily relinquish its nuclear weapons. Despite this, Canada remains protected by American nuclear weapons as a member of NATO and NORAD. Perhaps one of the most interesting governmental responses to the threats of nuclear war was creating a series of emergency bunkers across the country. The bunkers were named Diefenbunkers for then-Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, who approved their construction in 1959. These bunkers were designed to house key government officials and military personnel in the event of a nuclear war or another national emergency. As he was Prime Minister of Canada from 1957 to 1963, Diefenbaker oversaw the construction of the first bunker in Carp, Ontario in 1959. Four Diefenbunkers were built in various locations across Canada, including one in Carp, one in Penhold, Alberta, one in DeBert, Nova Scotia, and another one in Valcartier, Quebec. The Diefenbunkers were operated by the Canadian government. They were kept in a state of readiness throughout the Cold War era with regular drills and training exercises held to ensure that personnel were prepared to respond to an emergency. Each bunker was designed to be self-sufficient and capable of sustaining its inhabitants for weeks or months in the event of a nuclear attack. Their interiors were equipped with many facilities to support their inhabitants. These included sleeping quarters, kitchens, dining areas, medical facilities, communication systems, and a broadcasting studio. The massive cafeteria, open 24-7 for the bunker's 33 years of operation, was the largest room in the Diefenbunker complex in Carp, Ontario. Employees who worked there noted that the high-quality food made their time in the bunker much more enjoyable. According to virtualmuseum.ca, quote, The cafeteria always had enough fresh food for seven days, replenishing this supply every Monday. If the bunker did go into lockdown, the kitchen would serve ration packs for the remaining 23 days of lockdown. Because the Diefenbunker did not ever experience a 30-day lockdown situation, CFS CARP employees had nothing but good experiences with the food and nothing but good things to say about the chefs. End quote. A Diefenbunker was typically located in a remote area away from major population centers and potential targets for nuclear attack. The bunkers were built into a hill or other natural feature or constructed underground. The entrance to each Diefenbunker was typically heavily fortified with thick steel doors, blast-proof walls, and other security features. Entrances were concealed or disguised to prevent them from being targeted in a nuclear attack. The bunkers were several stories tall and covered several thousand square meters. They were self-sufficient in air, in power, and air filtration, and the bunkers had generators, fuel storage facilities, and backup power systems. Air filtration systems were installed to remove radiation and other possible contaminants from the air. Regarding security, each Diefenbunker was equipped with a range of security and defense measures to protect its inhabitants from potential threats. These included armed guards, surveillance systems, and anti-aircraft guns. Access to the bunkers was restricted to authorized personnel only, and visitors had to undergo background checks and security screenings before being allowed to enter. The bunkers were heavily fortified and designed to withstand a direct nuclear blast, with walls up to two meters thick and a reinforced concrete roof. The bunkers' locations deep underground further protected them against radiation, 
and each one had a decontamination area where occupants could remove and dispose of their outer clothing. The end of the Cold War was marked by the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, which ended decades of tension and rivalry between the Western powers led by the United States and the Eastern Bloc led by the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union's economic and political collapse, widespread social unrest, and the rise of democratic movements across Eastern Europe led to the peaceful transition of power in many countries and the dismantling of the communist system. The fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 is often seen as a symbolic moment at the end of the Cold War, which paved the way for a new era of international relations and a shift toward a more integrated, globalized world. Diefenbunkers, of course, became obsolete and were decommissioned. Today, some of the bunkers have been preserved as museums and historical sites, providing a glimpse into the realities of life during the Cold War and the measures taken to protect Canadian citizens and their government in a national emergency. If you want to visit a Diefenbunker, the one in Carp, Ontario, is now a museum. From the CanadianEncyclopedia.ca, quote, In 1994, three years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Defense Department decommissioned CFS CARP and withdrew from the site. That same year, it was designated a National Historic Site. Enough members of the public expressed interest in touring the former station that a private development group purchased it and opened the Diefenbunker Museum in 1998. The museum was originally operated by volunteers from CARP who decided to form the Diefenbunker Development Group after the public responded enthusiastically to their tours. Since its opening, the museum has become one of the most popular tourist destinations in Ontario, drawing nearly 70,000 visitors in 2019. The museum features permanent and rotating exhibitions and houses more than 3,000 books in its archives and library. Operating as a non-profit organization, the museum is funded through ticket sales, government grants, and private donations. End quote. You know what's really funny? Yeah. My friend Meredith sent me a photo of her there yeah, last, the Diefenbunker. last week. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool if we could do an episode out of the Diefenbunkers? This is Mike and Matthew reporting from the Diefenbunker. I would actually love to own a Diefenbunker or some sort of Cold War bunker, and that would be my home, and I would <laughs> I would podcast out of a bunker. You'd, like, never come out, and you're, you'd be, like, pure white that you could almost see through your skin. Yeah, look at translucent, Mike. You can actually see, like, the blood flowing through my body. Mike is trans, translucent. Translucent. While the Cold War effectively ended 30 years ago, once again, the world is becoming a scary place. Today's world faces significant polarization with political, social, and cultural divisions creating deep rifts within many societies. This polarization is often characterized by the rise of populist movements, the erosion of trust in traditional institutions, and an increasing sense of tribalism and identity politics. Just look at the news. Although we've been here before, it feels like we're headed toward an upheaval. Hopefully, as with the Cold War before, things won't escalate to the point of no return, though experts feel like we're closing in on something terrible. Citing Russia's invasion of Ukraine, climate change, biological threats, and disruptive technologies, the 2023 Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, known as the Doomsday Clock, founded in 1945 by Albert Einstein and University of Chicago scientists, says we're closer to doomsday than at any other time in history. 
The time for peace and change is now. And as the 2023 bulletin concludes, quote, In this time of unprecedented global danger, concerted action is required and every second counts. So let's stop fighting, folks. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All righty. We are here with voicemails. We've listened to a few, and then we have a few that we're actually going to play. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, there, there was there were there some, some interesting ones. I sure. That was, interesting is a good word. So let's listen to our first voicemail that we're going to listen to. Hey guys, this is RC from Washington, D.C. I've been a listener from the get and enjoy your show every week. I start my week with you guys and it's such a great way to start my week of professional dog walking. So I'll get paid to listen to amazing podcasts, including yours, period. I wanted to let you guys know that your show, in addition to being entertaining and informative, has been eye-opening when it comes to Canada. Um, as someone who's only been to Vancouver once, um, it's amazing how huge your country is. And uh, we are not taught any Canadian history in the United States, or very, very little. So in addition to being entertaining and intriguing. It is very informative and you have inspired me to want to visit Canada and of course, check out this Horton's place you keep talking about. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Keep up the good work. And um, I guess crap in your cap. Well, there you go. Actually, Tim Horton's now is owned by an American company. It's owned by, it's owned by Burger King. Burger King. Yeah. But uh, yeah, very fast. I, I have a job for RC. Whoa. Okay. What does R.C. do there in uh, Washington, D.C.? She sings for an all-female tribute band called R.C.D.C. <laughs> R.C.D.C. <laughs> My, uh... Butter boom. And R.C., by the way, we don't learn any American history up here either. So. No, well, we, we're inundated with it, though, in media. Yeah, but we're not taught anything. Uh, no. no. No, we're not taught anything. No. Um, interestingly, R.C. was my uncle's initials and so my dad used to call him rc okay oh rc and then but and rc's not rc she sounds very nice but but my uncle was rc right. and and rc used to call dad fuck face <laughs> <laughs> so he would he would just call up and he would say hey taz because he would call me taz for the tasmanian devil okay he, and he had this smoky voice hey taz is fuck face around <laughs> so funny. <laughs> like I'm a little kid That's and I'd great. be like, dad, it's uncle Bob. <laughs> this is your dad's brother. Yes. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Ah, well, RC. Thanks RC. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for your interesting band. I'm, I'm curious. Is it, is it on Spotify? RCDC. RCDC. Uh, let's listen to another voicemail. Hey guys, this is Kate from Los Angeles calling. I've been listening to your podcast for a few years now. I um, During COVID, I started driving to Santa Barbara between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara because I was in a long distance relationship. And I listened to every episode during those road trips, which at the time during COVID were only an hour and 10 minutes. And then, well, now that life is sort of back on track, it's like two 
two hours to go see my man up there. But anyway, uh, I just want to say I, how much I appreciate your sense of humor, Matthew. You and I are completely on the same wavelength. <laughs> and I love the um, historical background and all, all of it, just the respect for the victims, especially. Um, yeah, that's all I've got. But I also want to say, uh, j'espère que tu fais merci dans ton chapeau. I'm only like one of four people that speak French in Los Angeles. <laughs> Bonsoir. Bonsoir. And uh, thank you for telling us to go shit in our hat en français. Much appreciated. We don't get many calls from L.A. No, we don't get any calls from L.A. Do you remember LA. that song from Patsy Gallant? Which one? I'm a star in New York. I'm a star in L.A. No, I don't remember that song. You don't know that song? Oh, it was a disco thing, wasn't it? Yeah, that played in the after show. When you sing, I never know what Just you're... because <laughs> I can't sing, it doesn't mean I shouldn't, according to my mother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not discouraging you. I'm just saying I'm, I'm unable to determine... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kate. <laughs> Thank you. What does Kate do in L.A.? She's a star. Okay, there you go. Yeah, she's a star, and she's a star when she drives to see her man, and she's a star when... She calls in to listen, yeah. to, to leave us a voicemail. She's just a star. There you go. Good on you. And here's another voicemail. There's four. Oh, hi, Mike and Matthew. It's... Alex calling. Um, just finished listening to the failed justice, um, the murder of Bridget Grenier um, episode. Um, I always, <laughs> whenever the RCMP do the big uh, Mr. Big Ops, I always enjoy those stories. Um, start. Our other national sport, other than lacrosse, is the old Canadian Mr. Big Ops. Um, anyways. <laughs> Yeah, so it was, I'd never heard of that case before, and I know it's from a, um, kind of fell behind a couple uh, weeks um, with Dark Bushima because I've been watching the Alec Murdaugh trials. So yeah. this was, I think, from um, last month sometime. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I just wanted to say I, I had never heard of this case, and um found it quite interesting and uh, glad that Kyle finally, you know, got some justice after however many years he spent falsely, falsely imprisoned. And um, yeah, I guess that's it. Um, and uh, my, my dog Bunky also says hello. He, he especially in, enjoys the sound of the loons at the beginning of the show. Right, Bunk? <laughs> you say hi? Okay. Anyways, thank you. Have a good uh, rest of your week. And, yeah, just playing a bit of catch-up. Oh, and also I'm calling from Alberta. I don't think I've said that yet. Okay, <laughs> bye. <laughs> Thanks, Alex and Bunky. Yes, exactly. I love when the the owner of a dog or kitty calls and, and mentions their pet. I And um, I like that Mr. Big is our, our second national sport. Well, yeah, it's like... You know, at one point I said to myself, I'm not doing any more cases with Mr. Big. But you know what? There are so many that I wouldn't be able to do. But, and you have to do them just so I can shit on Mr. Big. Right. Yeah. Shit on Mr. Big. You Isn't know, there a Mr. Big chocolate bar? Which is one of my favorite chocolate bars. Okay. I was just going to say that. I love Mr. Big chocolate bars. Okay. Love them. Okay. And they are big. My favorite 
What's your favorite chocolate bar? My absolute favorite chocolate bar. Oh my gosh. I don't know because I'm a chocolate bar connoisseur, but I do like Wunderbar. Okay. Because the peanut butter. Peanut butter and chocolate, you got me every single time. Do you, my favorite is crunchy. Crunchy is a good bar, but I find them too thin. There's not enough of them. No, you're thinking of crispy crunch. No, crunchy. Okay. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah. Crunchy with the sponge in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And those, you can get those in the UK. I was thinking of, yeah. You can get them here. Nestle Crunch. Yeah. Yes, you can get them here. But uh, yeah, crunchy are really good. Um, They're the kind of bar that you can either crunch it or you can just put it in your mouth and let it melt. let that stuff melt. Yeah, Yeah. I love that honeycomb meltiness. Thank you, Alex, from... Alberta. There you go. And we've got one more voicemail this week. Let's have a listen. Hi, Mike. Hi, Matt. It's Andrea calling from Toronto, and I have nothing but complimentary things to say about you two. Well, that's I love the podcast. I look forward to you guys every Monday. And I recently discovered on Amazon Music, I get uh, the next week's episode ahead of time. So that's fantastic. So keep up the good work. I'd also love it if you would cover the crimes of Dylan Millard and Mark Smitch. Um, he, sorry, they killed three people and it's such a great, great story. And I don't think you give Toronto enough attention, but you know, <laughs> us Toronto people think we're the center of the universe. Anyway, um, go shit in your hat. Bye. Yeah. So, uh, yes, I agree that that case needs to be done. I'm working on a series. Of, of Dellen Millard and Mark Schmidt's crimes. So, yes. We both broke into laughter and he said, Toronto doesn't get enough attention. We yep. were like, oh, you do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for calling, Andrea. Yes, definitely. And uh, what do you think Andrea does in Toronto there, Matt? I think she's a high-powered lawyer in one of those tall buildings that we don't have in the rest of Canada. Right. I don't know why we're so scared of a tall building here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand it, but whatever. It is what it is. We're joking. There's lots of tall buildings. Yes, exactly. But Toronto has the tallest ones. Toronto's a fun city. It is. I like Toronto. Yeah. You know, like, people poo-poo it because... It's the biggest city in Canada. Everyone, everyone poo-poo's the biggest city in any country in right, the world. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I like Toronto. Sorry, Toronto. everybody in every other city. Toronto. <laughs> Toronto. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All right. As far as patrons go, we have one this week. Uh, And that is Catherine Maud from Apple Hill, Ontario. Apple Hill. Yeah. Apple Hill. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of Apple Hill, Ontario. Have you, Matthew? I have not either. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you don't know where Apple Hill is? I, I do not know. I'll look it up while you tell me what she does there in Apple Hill. She owns a cidery. Guess what? What? <laughs> it, Apple Hill Growers Association. So that's probably, there is an Apple Hill Growers Association there. Yeah. So 
Well, lots of apples in Ontario. Oh, no. No, I'm just thinking Apple Hill, Surrey. Apple Hill, Ontario. So hey, let's, let's start looking that at over stuff? again. Okay. So you tell me what... <laughs> oh, my God. What is wrong with me? You tell me what Catherine Maud does in Apple Hill, Ontario, while I look up where Apple, Apple Hill, Ontario is. Okay. Uh, it looks like it's rural. Lancaster County. Okay. Okay. So do you know where that is? I know where that is, yes. Okay. Is that, that is close to Ottawa. It's right smack between Ottawa and Montreal. There you go. Yep. Yep. So. She owns a cidery. A cidery. Well, you, that makes sense if, for if you're somebody. If Apple Hill, you have to own a cidery, I think. So is it like hard cider or is it uh, just, you know, apple juice and, and apple cider that isn't alcoholic? I didn't know there was a non-alcoholic one. Yeah, you can get non-alcoholic cider. Okay, she does both. She does both. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, I haven't had... <laughs> there was an apple cider. I don't know if it's still around. It was called Golden Glow Okay. in Nova Scotia. And we used to say, what are you doing tonight? I'm getting a glow on. <laughs> and you would buy a gallon of this 25% apple cider from the liquor store with the screw-off cap. And seriously, I, I'm pretty sure every fight that ever, ever started on the weekend had, was, had Golden Glow involved. Golden Glow? And not to poo-poo Golden Glow. I'm sure it's a very nice cider. Other ciders available. Yeah. But however, uh, yeah, I just remember a lot of property damage and fights around so it, <laughs> Golden it, Glow. So after the Golden Glow is a golden glowing... I thought you were going to go somewhere else. Golden but. glowing... Um, Black eye. A golden glowing back. Yeah, well, you know, your black eye does turn gold at some point. True. Right. So we have two Donut Money donors this week. Most excellent. Most excellent. And uh, first up, coming from PayPal, oh. is Delilah from Duncan, British Columbia. And uh, she says, Delilah has been having a stellar year in sales. Much love, much love from Duncan. Great. That's fantastic, Delilah. I'm, yeah. I'm glad you've been having a stellar year in sales. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what she's selling. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So we know she's from Duncan, uh, home of one of the world's largest hockey sticks at the Duncan Arena. There's this gigantic hockey stick there. Who who used to use it? I don't... Paul Bunyan, okay. perhaps. Okay. Uh, just, you know, decided he'd come to Duncan, British Columbia and play hockey. Uh, but what does Delilah sell there? I kind of like the, uh, the, 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 the way Delilah's delicatessen rolls off the tongue. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, so she sells delicatessens? Yeah. <laughs> she sells deli meats. She does just anything related delicious to delicious morsels. Morsels? That's, yeah, that's what she sells. Delicious morsels of, of lovely things. Oh, well, there you go. Everybody <laughs> needs a delicious morsel of some description. Yeah. Thank you so much, Delilah. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And uh coming from our internet inter coming from Interac, uh a donation from longtime listener and Yumberyarder. Legsy Charlton. Legsy. And uh, close, put your hands over the kids' ears here. Okay. She says, because motherfucking joy, bitches, <laughs> and some kibbles for the kitties. 
Legsy Charlton. Yes. Yeah, she's great. She's, yeah, like I say, she's been listening a very long time. From like near the beginning sort of. Well, the beginning Okay, that's yeah. excellent. Yeah. So, thank you. What does Legsy do? Cabaret. Oh, cabaret. Come on, Legsy is a great <laughs> cabaret name. Yeah, she does the kicking, the high kicking, like the rockets. Okay, there you go. Yeah, exactly. That's Legsy, right there. There you go. Well, thank you so much for your donation. Muchos gracias, our friend. Anyway, that's that. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for this week's episode of Dark Poutine. Yeah. So until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Be good to each other out there. Please. It's time we start being good to each other again. Bye. Bye.